1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cao. My guest today is Scott Simon. Scott is a professor of sociological and anthropological studies at the University of Ottawa, where he is also the co chair of Taiwan Studies. He specializes in the political anthropology of Taiwan's indigenous peoples. Naturally, this is a subject in his latest book, Truly Human Indigeneity and Indigenous Resurgence on Formosa, published April 2023 by the University of Toronto Press. The book encapsulates over two decades of ethnographic field research that Scott did alongside Decedic and Truku indigenous peoples in Taiwan. It delves deep into different aspects of their lives, hunting practices, belief systems, electoral politics, storytelling, and more. Scott, thanks for coming on the New Books Network.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to share my new book with you.
1: And happy to talk with you about your book as well. Well, let's dive in then. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up focusing on indigeneity and indigenous peoples on Taiwan?
2: Yeah, I I think that that's a a really good place to start. In fact, one of the things I've learned from the Algonquin people where I live now in Canada is that all knowledge is situated in, in the person that holds that knowledge. And so I think it really is an important question. And, you know, it started when I was an undergraduate. And I needed to take a foreign language, and I had an opportunity to learn Chinese. So I took Chinese as my foreign language and went to China and really got hooked. So Chinese became my undergraduate major. Um, So when I went to grad school, I think it was rather obvious to me that I would do something in the Chinese world. And things didn't work out. It was a bit too expensive to go to mainland China. And so I ended up in Taiwan. Instead, I did research on the leather tanning industry for my PhD research in Tainan. Nothing to do with indigenous peoples at all so far, right? Um, I was very lucky. I was uh, at the Institute of Ethnology, where I am right now, uh, as a doctoral fellow. And then I got a job in Taiwan, and then I got a postdoctoral fellowship at Academia Sinica's Institute of Sociology. And I was teaching part-time anthropology. And it's then when I met... Um, A woman, her photo is actually on page 59 here of the book, and it's dedicated to her among those who have passed away since I started doing the research. But Igong Shiban, um, who is Durugu, um, said to me at that time, why are you doing all this research with these Han People in Taipei who are the elite in Taiwan, you should be studying and doing research with us, the indigenous people, because we are the most marginalized, poorest people in Taiwan. And we really need your research and your help. And so she kind of recruited me. Um, She was a social activist. She was working with environmentalists and indigenous rights groups um, in protests against uh, the Asia Cement Corporation that was mining on her territory. And so I just jumped in. I helped her write an article about the mining industry. And then when I got my job in Canada, she was really upset. And she said, I'll never see you again. And I said, Icon, you'll see me every single year. I promise you that for my entire career, I will come back and I will do research. And then I got money from the Canadian government to do research with her group. And so I, I spent my the last 20 years doing that. So that's how I got into it. I was recruited. Wow.
1: Sounds like a really... <laughs> opportune story that ended up working out quite well. Um, well, in this case, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about the context of the indigenous people of Taiwan and the Sidik and Turuku people specifically?
2: Yeah. So basically, you know, we talk about indigenous peoples all over the world now, um, and you know, like there's the United Declaration on United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and. So people often ask me this question, well how does how does Taiwan fit in there? And you know I will say I will explain it that that it's it's basically part of the same historical process um, of how these all of these peoples got the category of of the legal category of being indigenous. And it has to do with the expansion of of the European capitalist economy around the world. And I think you've probably heard sometime people talking about the doctrine of discovery, and that was you know the Pope basically announced this doctrine of discovery that if if Europeans and Christians go any place in the world uh, where there's a, where there are stateless primitive peoples who don't believe in in Christianity, uh, they have the right to to move in there and take over territory and and convert people, and so. Because you know China and Japan and so forth had modern states for their time. So the, they didn't go and colonize them, but they, they went to places like North America and South America. And Taiwan at that time in the, in the 1600s, um, didn't have a state. It was not part of China. It was not part of Japan, even though Chinese and Japanese sometimes you know landed here and did things and then left. Um, but there, there were no states. There was a bunch of stateless peoples. Um, living quite happily in the forests, in the mountains, on the coasts, um, living their lives in small, closely-knit communities. And so the Dutch uh, um, wanted to have a colony in China, and China said, no, you can't do that, but there's this other island, and you can go there. And so the Dutch went there. And gradually, over time, the Dutch were there. They got kicked out by uh, a rebel Ming Dynasty guy named Koshinga or Zheng Gong, and then he got kicked out by the Qing dynasty. And then they brought in settlers from China and they moved up the coast. But they, they never conquered those high mountain areas. And so until the Japanese took it in 1895, those mountainous areas in the central and east coast were still autonomous and living their traditional life with no state. And um, you know they might have traded with people on the outside, but they had no state and they were really autonomous democratic really radically democratic societies and so it was the japanese who first incorporated them into a state and then the republic of china John kai-shek came and they kind of inherited that system um, but that, that's the origin of how they became indigenous and what i find really interesting about the sedek and Durugu, they're very closely related are that they were the last group to be incorporated into a state Um, And it was the Durugu in Hualien in 1914. So from Japan got there in 1895. It took nearly 20 years until 1914 before the Durugu agreed to enter into a new relationship with Japan. And Japan had one of the most modern militaries at the time. And the Durugu had the hunting rifles and some bows and arrows and fought them for 90 days before they finally uh, decided there was nothing they could do, and they surrendered. So that's the specialty of the sedek and drugu is their spirit of resistance. Um, and the sedek they also rebelled in 1930, and so that's what drew me. I think I was going ahead. That you know, she was resisting Asia's cement. She had that spirit, and I think that's something that I've always admired.
1: Well, we'll get to the spirit of resistance and the. Uh incident in 1930, a little bit later in this conversation. But I do want to start off with uh, the first part of the book where you explore the roles that forest animals play in Sereq and Turuku life. Uh, tell us more about this and how issues like indigenous hunting rights have even made it to Taiwan's Supreme Court within the recent few years.
2: Yeah, I, I think this is really important. The relationship with animals in the forest and it's, it's, it really is the, core of of their identity today. And, you know, when I first went there to do research, I had uh, some graduate students. We had two, one one from Taiwan and one from Canada. And they gave us all animal names because animals are important to them. So they called the one guy a munchak. They said his face was long and narrow, like that little deer that's called a munchak. And the the, the Taiwanese guy, he had a little mustache. And they said he looked like a flying squirrel. So they called him Lapi, flying squirrel. They called me. They said, you're the big one. We're going to call you Kumai, which means pear. And they said, we're going to watch you carefully. And if we think you have the right moral characteristics, if you're a good enough person, then we're going to give you a real Darugu name. Uh, but they started with animals. And they, they, did, they did finally give me a Darugu name. Um, but they started with animals. And so it's really important for the, the men to hunt. And so, in fact, they say that to be a real man, you have to be able to hunt and so they start out you know taking their small boys to climb in the mountains and they they teach them to hunt well you know rats and and birds and so forth and then finally they graduate up to flying squirrels and then finally the real game animals it's really really important to them and in fact they say that it's important to them as kind of a ritual it's the way that they engage with the the ancestral spirits and the mountain spirits and they say it replaced their old rituals. And so it, it's very important then that they can hunt. But then the state says we've got to protect all of these animals. And so they uh, created a, a legal framework in which basically in most situations, hunting is criminalized for one reason or another. Um, the big one being that uh, the big portion of Taiwan consists of national parks. It's illegal to hunt in national parks. Um, and so, um, and basically, the law says that they can hunt if they have their own homemade rifles. See, these homemade rifles are very dangerous. They get these parts at the hardware store, uh, carve some wood, use some metal tubing, uh, use these BB pellets. Uh, use uh, they don't they can't use modern ammunition and so forth. So they use the firecrackers power the powder for that fire powder. Um, it's very dangerous and sometimes they injured themselves and so i think that's one of the the biggest problems but what happened was that there was this guy um we call him dama it means father dama and he went hunting for his mother who wanted a a munchak the little deer and a sarah which is like a mountain goat so he did that but he 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 would he took a modern rifle with him and then he was arrested he was charged with a lot of uh charges because he had the wrong kind of rifle he that took two endangered animals and so it went to the constitutional court and they, they basically said that the um the laws against hunting should be upheld um that it's that being indigenous even though the law says an indigenous people have the right to hunt doesn't mean you can hunt endangered species so you have to only hunt um the animals that are not endangered and then um, there's a The rule about the hunting rifles being homemade they said that's okay but the law is not clear enough we're going to make you the government has to write a clear law about that and there was a a ridiculous rule that all of the hunters hate that says that in order to hunt legally you have to go to the local government and you have to register and you're going to have to tell them on which day you're going to hunt and where you're going to hunt and which animal you're going to catch and the animal the the hunters always say well we, there's no way we can know that because it's the ancestors who give us a dream and then tell us when and where to go hunting and the ancestors give us the animal we can't determine ourselves in advance they say you know it's not like making an appointment with your dentist you know you can't just call up and say to the to the boar i'm going to have a, i want to go catch a boar today and so they find it all completely unreasonable and so the government the the court decided that they have to make some adjustments to the regulations, but they still uphold all of that. And so the indigenous people were very upset with the courts for that decision.
1: Mm. Well, another thing that the book addresses in the next section is this trope that Han people in Taiwan, I guess, the people who were making the laws that we were just talking about, uh, often associate with indigenous peoples, which is the practice of headhunting. Mm-hmm. What is headhunting, and can you help us move beyond tropes to understand the context and the narratives beyond uh, behind this practice?
2: Yeah, I, I, that's a very important issue, and it's a very it's a very touchy and controversial one as well. Um, but basically, what's happened is that the non-indigenous have used these stories about head hunting to say that these were all primitives, with violent, um, they need to be controlled. And so it kind of promoted a really racist worldview about them. And what's interesting is beginning in the 90s, they started to really embrace their history, because indeed, they did have a ritual in which they would take a human head. And so I People talk about it. They try to recreate it sometimes in these public rituals. They're quite proud of it now. And so I went back into the Japanese era writings and talked to people about it and tried to re reconstruct what it was all about and came to the conclusion that it was basically a way of managing relations with other communities um, that can be hostile and managing it in a way which i which i argue and people agreed with me with this is that it's a a way of actually controlling homicides and as you know you're in california right now there are lots of homicides in the united states right and so what it is is that it sets up a ritual situation in which you can only do the homicide if you've done the right rituals it can only happen at a certain time of year and so it's actually very hard for it to happen and what happens is um one of the contexts in which it would be happening is for a conflict resolution, and it's a, it's an interesting thing because you know they didn't have courts and judges and all that, but let's say there's two people in a in a community who have a disagreement about something. Maybe one person accuses the other one of having stolen something, and that person says, well, I didn't do it." Both sides claim they're right. Uh, the leaders in the community can't negotiate, and they finally say, "Okay, both of you." You try to convince a group of people to go with you way through the mountains, to a faraway place. And then you're going to set up a hut in front of somebody else's village and do some rituals. They're all going to notice you're there. And then you're going to kill somebody and bring back a head. That's really hard to do. And then if one of them comes back successfully with a head, then they'll bring it into the community and they all dance and sing. And that person is, 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 is proven by the ancestors that they're right. Um, on the other hand, it's it's very likely that they won't come back successfully at all because of all those conditions I just said. And it's also possible that they could get killed by those other people. It's also possible there could be an injury, in which case they would have to come back into the community naked and in shame. And so I, I really think that it's, uh, the word in their language is magaya, which means the implementation of the sacred law. And so it was a very, very important thing for them in the pre-colonial period. And, but I think it, most of all, it, it put a lid on homicidal tendencies that exist in all communities. And so most likely there was actually a far lower homicide rate in that society than there is in the United States right now. So, and when you compare... This particular practice, which sounds really cruel and inhumane, it is taking of human life. It still pales in comparison to things like, you know, atomic bombs, uh, concentration camps, all of the things of modernity. And so, I, I think there's some some beauty there that they found a way of controlling homicidal tendencies, which are human.
1: Well, talking about sacred laws that which you brought up just a few moments ago, I want to talk about the next chapter uh you know after the one where you talk about the uh, headhunting where uh, we move on to a discussion about belief systems um mm-hmm. tell us more about how christianity exists alongside uh these traditional indigenous beliefs and also the social political role that christianity plays for the sadic and uh, truku people
2: okay yeah so basically the uh uh, the word Gaia, they, we often translate it as a law, we say ancestral law, sacred law, etc. But it can also be culture, it can also be uh, the traditional religion. It, and so the core of Gaia is that um, it's, it's, there are the moral principles of sharing, taking care of your family, taking care of your community. There's that relationship with the, the ancestors that have passed on um, and are in the mountains now. And so it, it really is a, a religious system. Uh, the most important ritual in it, there was Magaya I just talked about. Um, there's also the ritual of sacrificing pigs, which they continue to do to this day. If there's a any event that you have to communicate with the ancestors, you would sacrifice a pig or more pigs. And so, for example, if it's a really happy event, you get married, you want to announce to the ancestors, there's a new relationship between between these two people two families and so you sacrifice a, a fair maybe maybe three four five six pigs uh, maybe more if they've got big families and then you split the meat among everyone um, and so basically there's this traditional system of Gaia they're also shamans and then Christianity came in and they tell me that when Christianity they came in they saw it as being compatible with their own Gaia And they said that the most important values of Christianity, which are sharing and family and community, are all the values of Gaia. And so it was very easy for them to to convert to Christianity.
1: Well. We'll move from Christianity to electoral politics, um, which is also something that's quite interesting, maybe especially for political scientists who might be listening to this podcast. Um, How do elections intersect with community dynamics? And can you also talk a little bit about how indigenous peoples fit within Taiwan's blue-green political divide?
2: Yeah, I I think we're going to have to step back a little bit for those not familiar with, with Taiwanese politics. Um, the green and blue, I think we have to explain that. Um, but basically the, uh, the, the blues would be the, the more conservative ones. It's the KMT Chinese nationalist party that came to Taiwan with John Kai-shek and, and after World War II. So in 1945, um, and you know, they, they created, um, a whole new system, um, And the indigenous people, they actually had elections back then for local, local, local posts, like the provincial assembly and local township and village elections. Um, And they participate in that. They had a quota for indigenous representatives to the provincial assembly. Um, All of this prior to uh, the end of martial law and democratization at the higher levels of the government. And, and then, so we call them the blues now. They're the, the blue cap. And then. In the uh, social movement era of the 1980s, the the, the opposition created the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, and so we call those the Greens, and they tend to be much more closely linked to uh, progressive social movements, um, and including the indigenous rights movement, the uh, environmental, women, LGBT issues, all of these progressive things are the 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 Greens are there for that um, more than the Blues are. And so that's your blue and your green. It's your KMT versus the, the DPP. And so then the question about is where do the indigenous people fit in? And, you know, most people outside of Taiwan would guess that because the DPP talks about indigenous rights all the time. Um, Tsai Ing-wen, the president, even apologized uh, right after getting elected for 400 years of colonization. Uh, so one would expect if they're voting in terms of issues uh that they would vote for but in terms in, in large numbers for the dpp which talks a lot about indigenous rights but in fact they vote overwhelmingly i mean it's really like 80 90 percent it's like uh you know it's it's not quite north korea but they really vote um overwhelmingly for the for the kmt and so that's a real puzzle um, for political scientists and political anthropologists to figure out. And so that's one of the two uh, political issues I deal with in that chapter called Lulungan, heart, because the heart is the seat of, uh, of ethical and moral reflection. And so basically, I, you know, the, the DPP people like to say, well, all oh, those indigenous people, they're easily bought off and they, they're bribed. And I think there's a, a little bit of a, of a racist sentiment there. Uh, because these are intelligent people who are voting according to their own best interests. And I think that the KMT has, over decades and long before democratization, done a really good job of treating indigenous peoples in in ways that they want to be treated, Um, often protecting them from outside investors, um, ensuring that there are 30 mountain townships in which outsiders cannot purchase land, um, guaranteeing them political representation at the township and provincial level. And now at the national level. And, and the KMT has been really good at building up networks in those communities, really solid uh, emotional ties, often intermarriage um, uh, with local women. And so, because these people that came with John Kai-shek, they're called mainlanders. Why Siren? And they've, you know, married into these communities. So people have relationships of kin with them and they feel very loyal. Um, Like I said before, in Gaia, you take care of your community. And so they they feel that sense of loyalty to the KMT. Um, And so it's really easy for the KMT to spread their message uh, and to really mobilize people to go out and vote. And, you know, part of Gaia as well is that they have these small groups of people that they have really close relations and they call it the people who eat together. And traditionally, those small groups of people uh, would exchange labor. So let's say you need help on your, you know, on your you know, your rice fields or whatever you're growing today, and then tomorrow we'll go work on somebody else's. And with this particular practice, they're able to mobilize people to go out and vote. And it's actually a lot of fun to be in these villages at election time because there'll be these huge groups of people. They go marching through the street, and they've got music and loudspeakers and like a cars and jeeps and they handing out literature. And they've got these big feasts at the end of the day. Um, all of the candidates do that, um, but it, it's generally the KMT that mobilizes the most votes. And so the the real comp- the DPP is there, but the real competition is is usually between different factions of the KMT or other parties that might emerge. And so, that are related to that KMT, you know. So it's it's quite interesting to see that happening.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Let's move from electoral politics to what you address in your penultimate chapter, which is about storytelling and memory within the Siddick and Druku communities, especially in relation to the Musha incident, which you um, hinted at earlier in our conversation, and fans of Taiwanese cinema or action movies might know uh, better as the subject of the 2011 epic film *Sedek Bale*. Um, tell us more about your findings here.
2: Yeah, well, I hope everybody watches this film because I think it's a really great film. It's quite, it's quite gory, but it's worth seeing. Uh, *Sedek Bale*, Warriors of the Rainbow. And in fact, the the name of the book, *Truly Human*. Is, it, is, it, is basically a sedek balai. Um, so that's that's a word that they would use to praise somebody of strong moral character. A sedek balai, you know, a real mensch. And so that's why my two books about them, I, I I use that. So I called it Truly Human in this book by Toronto Press. Um, but anyway, I wrote this chapter. It's called Dominun. And I started the book with the animals and the hunting. And I wanted to kind of balance it out by having something about women's work, because just like you have to be able to hunt to be a real man, to be a real woman, you have to be able to weave. And so the word for weaving is dominun. But that word is, um, has a lot of meanings in their language, and it also means weaving together stories. And so this chapter is about weaving together the stories um, through which they became Durugu and Sedek. And this kind of goes back to your first question about, you know, what's special about Turugu and Sedek and how did they become indigenous and so forth. But, you know, in the, in the old days, uh, before there was a state, all of these disparate groups across Taiwan, they didn't really have this idea of being uh, a nation or an ethnic group or a tribe or whatever. They were just people. And they all had a word for human in their language. And so there's Bunun and there's Sedek, and there's uh, Dao and Daya, and all of these are different groups in Taiwan, and they all mean human. Uh, so basically, what happened is when the Japanese came and they wanted to, because states have to classify different peoples into different groups, they can control who lives where, who pays taxes, and all of that. And so the Japanese sent these anthropologists to try to figure out which tribes they belong to. And they would go to the communities and say, well, who are you? You know, what, what, what should we call you? And when they got to the SEDEC, the uh, what happened is they, uh, they asked them, what are you? And they said, well, we're not animals. We're not monkeys. We're not deer. We're SEDEC. They just meant we're human. And so the Japanese, they created these nine categories. And finally, they, they picked uh, Dayan, a tie to cover uh, a larger group of people. Including what are now the Sediq and the Durugu, and Durugu, uh, they call themselves Sediq Durugu in their language. So if they're not speaking Chinese, they'll call them Sedic, Durugu. Sedic means people, and Durugu means it's a it's a, a place up high in the mountain. So it's with terraced land, and so it basically means mountain people. <laughs> but the word Sediq is still there. Um, but then what happened is with democratization, there were different groups of people. Uh, that wanted to split away from the Ataya. And the first ones were the Durugu who became Tai in Chinese or Durugu um, in 2004. And then the Sedek got their identity in 2008 and the state recognized them. And now there are 16 officially recognized groups. And so there was like um, confederations of little communities that decided to become Durugu, and another confederation that decided to become Sedek. And, and they did that. But then they have to convince everybody else in their group that they, this change is, is, is a good thing. And so they weave together the stories. And so I, this chapter is really that, about how, how they became Turugu and Tzedek as two different indigenous nations. And so I engaged with some indigenous authors there on both sides. And um, one of them is the, the Battle for Taroko. Uh, which was in nineteen fourteen. And then the other one, which is really big in Taiwan because of that film, is uh, what's called the Musha incident in in Japanese. And it was the 1930 rebellion in which they they rose up. It was a big dramatic historical incident. It's deeply graved in in their in their way of being and their identity. Because what happened is with among the uh the Sedekitaya there were 12 Alam, or 12 groups, and Mona Ludao, who was this leader, he went around and tried to get them to join forces against the Japanese. And six of those groups said they would do it, and six of them refused. Uh, One of them, actually in the community of Musha, he said, I'm not going to go, we're not going to fight with you, but if your women need shelter and your children need shelter, they can come to us. And That group also sheltered the Japanese. And and so this happened on um, October 27, 1930, which was a a very important day for the Japanese. It was commemorating a Japanese prince that had been killed in the takeover of Taiwan. And so they, they forced everybody to go to the schoolyard. And just as they were raising the Japanese flag, Uh, and beginning to sing the anthem, then the warriors attacked, and they started to kill all of the Japanese who were present. And so that's basically the the beginning of the Musha incident, because, and that's what historians usually call the Musha incident, is that uprising. From the Zedek perspective, there are actually two Musha incidents. Um, The first one is after the uprising, the Japanese used the most modern military means possible uh they even used um poison gases which was illegal at the time uh against really these people who had who had no weapons to fight back and so that was the first from the from the Sedek perspective the first musha incident is when the japanese reprised had this reprisal against them it killed a lot of people um it was it was a, it was a real holocaust and so Then they took the survivors and they put them into a detention camp. And there were always hostilities between different groups. And so the Japanese then mobilized a a group that was hostile against these, these groups. And they attacked them in the detention center and killed many others. And so they were really left with a very small population. And the Japanese put them on they were originally up high in the mountains and in different communities. And they put the very few survivors into a, into an Island in the middle of the river and down in the plains and, and made them live there. It was heavily guarded. They say it was like a concentration camp and they had to like get Japanese guards to escort them into town. If they wanted to buy something, they were under surveillance for a long time. And a lot of there were suicides. people died from tropical diseases down there. It was, it was, you know, a really founding moment to their, to their history. And so it's important to talk about that and
1: actually a bit more than the film. Yeah. Uh, the film has a lot of headings, but definitely doesn't go into all the aspects uh, of the history. Um, and I mean, the, the film is, is also quite interesting from a perspective of just its role in constructing Taiwan's modern you know, national identity. And I think that's a um, good transition point to, talking about what you discuss in the conclusion and the epilogue uh, around what the future might hold for indigenous peoples in Taiwan uh, on two fronts. Um, One is the relationship with the Taiwan or ROC state apparatus, and then two is Taiwan's relationship uh, with China. What should people who aren't necessarily specialists in Taiwan uh, but maybe just see it as you know a geopolitical flashpoint on the cover of The Economist or something like yeah. that um, know know about its indigenous peoples and and how they interface with uh, these two issues that we just brought up here
2: yeah so I think the 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 first issue is the Republic of China's state, which is the state here, confusingly with that name on Taiwan it still is the official name of the country, the state and So I think that what they're trying to do is to create greater substantial autonomy, some kind of recognition of their sovereignty. And so I think that the first step that needs to be done is each one of these 16 groups needs to be recognized as being a legal person so that just like the Navajo uh, can do, they can actually sign agreements with the state and with corporations. I think that's very important. Um, I think that, and this is probably the conclusion of the book, is that their their legal and moral and spiritual system of Gaia is still alive and it still guides them, and it can guide them in that relationship with the state as well. Um, and I think all of the other groups, they've got something similar to Gaia. So I was focusing on Sedek, Drogu, but their other ones have something similar. And so there's that relationship, which is something that they can negotiate because it's a democratic state. And even though there's resistance, I think that a, a lot of the, the politicians and ordinary people in Taiwan think, why, wait, 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 why should indigenous people have right to sovereignty that others don't have? You know what? Um, it has to do with being indigenous, that there are special legal frameworks internationally and domestically in Taiwan that give the indigenous people certain rights, including the right to autonomy and self-government that other communities don't have. So that's that relationship with the ROC. But then there's this big question that always looms over Taiwan studies, and that's the People's Republic of China, which says that Taiwan is an inalienable part of the People's Republic of China and that they want to unify by all means, even if military means are necessary to get there. And what's interesting is that in 2019 Xi Jinping everybody knows his name nowadays but he um made a speech in memory of the of of an earlier speech by Deng Xiaoping to the so-called compatriots of Taiwan in which he kind of reiterated this it's always been there um but he, he reiterated that they want peaceful reunification and if they don't get that they'll use military means and then the uh indigenous peoples of Taiwan some people at the uh The presidential office had set up this transitional justice and a committee for indigenous people and they they came up with a statement in which they said that the indigenous peoples of taiwan uh, have always been the sovereign nations of this land and we might not be happy with some things that the government does but nonetheless we want to create a new taiwan with all of the peoples of taiwan And we do not accept what Xi Jinping has said. And so I talk about that in the epilogue. And I think that the conclusion is that Taiwan's liberal democracy is still much better for the indigenous peoples, in spite of all of the problems that exist in liberal democracies, than what China offers. Because here's this other alternative on the horizon. And I think all we have to do is look at the way that China treats the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and other minorities to know that if ever Taiwan were to become incorporated into the People's Republic of China by violent or even by peaceful means, I think there is a very real danger um, that all of these dreams of sovereignty and self-government would get cast aside and there could be a real genocide there, just like with the Uyghurs. And so I, I'm mostly afraid of that. And so that's, that's why I added that epilogue to that. Um, and I think, I think it's important to get that word out there.
1: Yeah, definitely important for you know folks, not just uh, you know, very focused on indigenous studies and anthropology, uh, but beyond to uh, note this dimension to uh, you know, the relationship between Taiwan and China, as well as just things happening within the indigenous communities uh, on Taiwan. Um, Well, you've been working on this book probably, what, two decades or more of work has been put into this. Um, My next question and final question is, what are you working on next? Yeah,
2: well, I've got a brand, not really a brand new project, but since 2017, I've had a new project. It's called Austronesian World. So it's, they speak Austronesian language. It's kind of looking at this part of the world, but I'm looking at it bigger. And so I actually did a year of research in Japan. Now I'm in Taiwan for one year of field work. And it's looking at all of the different peoples who inhabit this space in the Western Pacific and how they have created their lives in very local ways in different places in the relations they have with all of the other living beings around them, um, including the animals they hunt, including the birds that might come to their rice fields, and the birds—they tell stories about, and they've created cultures and ways of beings that are always tied to other non-human lives as well. And so, I, I, that's what I'm working on now. It's a—it it's a, was always there. You know, the cover of the book here has this little bird here. It's called shishil, and so the the and turuku—it's it's their national symbol. And when they hunt, you know, they they look at the bird, and if it flies on. The right-hand side of the path, it's a good sign. If it's on the left-hand side, they should not even bother hunting because they won't catch anything. And if it makes noises beep, 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 and flies in front of them, it's a very bad sign. Something's happened in the village and they should go back. And so that's an example of the kind of entanglements that we have with different animals and then with birds. And it's nothing completely exotic. I think that you know the bald eagle and the Americans have a relationship. That's why that's the national symbol of the United States. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, around the world, humans have always woven together um, cultures and ways of being in the world uh, by imagining the animals and the plants and the worlds around them in, in, in very local specific ways. And so I'm looking at that across Taiwan and I'm going to do field work continuously with the said, but also go to Orchid Island and also work with a Chinese somewhat populations on the on Mazu just off the coast of Fujian and also in Tainan, which is really the heart of, uh, of Taiwan in many ways. It's where the Dutch set up. I'm going to be at Chiku, and they have a, a kind of bird there, which is almost like a national symbol of Taiwan as well, which is the blackface spoonbill. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, just going to hang out with people and see how they imagine those other beings around them and tie together identities and cultures.
1: Well, look forward to learning and reading more about birds, indigeneity, interaction between them, whatever comes out of that uh, even further. Um, But for now, thank you very much, Scott, for helping us learn about um, this dimension of indigenous life, these specific communities in Taiwan. Listeners, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look for Scott Simon's latest book, Truly human, indigeneity, and indigenous resurgence on Formosa. Scott, thanks again for coming on the New Books Network.
2: Yep. Thank you, Anthony. It was a pleasure.